show the Lord's death till he come. As I prepared for sharing here, uh, preaching here this evening, it seemed like there was a verse and there was a phrase and there was a passage that seemed to be competing for my attention and for prominence here in the sermon. So I tried to maybe incorporate those three. Um, and one of the, the verse that I was thinking about was the verse that I just read. It's in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Jesus, our suffering Savior. Uh, that verse highlights his suffering and death, his broken body and his shed blood. All of that is fitting and right and good for us to consider at communion time. It's certainly one of the themes woven into the communion service and especially the emblems uh, that we'll be sharing in just a little while. But that verse also implies, well, there's present in that verse, right? For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, that's the present, that's for us this evening. But there's also past there, ye do show the Lord's death, and then there's the future, till he come. Lord's death in the past, but part of the communion message certainly is that Jesus not only died and suffered and died and shed his blood and gave his body to be broken on the cross, but that he also lives again, the resurrection, and is coming again one of these times. I kind of think that communion with all its meaning is a little bit incomplete if we don't also think about and are encouraged by and his coming again even so come Lord Jesus that verb there you do show the Lord's death you do show the Lord's death till he comes that's not a word that we would often use that verb of modern translations like the ESV and the NIV would substitute the word proclaim there. We do, as often as we do this, we proclaim. And uh, Strong's Expository Dictionary uses the, talks about a public announcement. So as we, this evening, there's not one preacher preaching, there's not but all of us are participating in communion, are preachers. We're showing the Lord's death till he come. We're proclaiming lots of preachers here this evening. And who are we preaching to and who are we preaching for in, as we do that? Well, for the children that are here, uh, we do that to visitors and to each other. Uh, I think that we even are preaching perhaps to Satan's emissaries and to the holy angels, and we're certainly preaching not to God, but for God. We do show 
We do proclaim, we do preach the Lord's death till he come. Well, that's 1 Corinthians 11:26. That was the verse that seemed to be coming to me. Uh, just a little bit now, let's think together about the phrase that uh, seemed like it should be incorporated into the sermon. And that phrase is the first four words in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus. Dave said that we want to really highlight and lift up Jesus tonight, this evening, and all of our lives, but especially tonight, you said. Yes, yes indeed. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. And especially those first four words again. But we see Jesus. And... That is the title that I've chosen. We see Jesus. The verse, the phrase. Then the passage that seemed to keep coming back to me is in Luke 24. And if you will, if you, it would be wonderful if you'd turn to that. Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. And as you turn there, maybe you already know the, what's happening there. In Luke 24, uh, there was two disciples on their way home. And these disciples were downhearted and they were disillusioned and they were discouraged. So much so that they really had firmly turned their backs to the whole grand mess that had just happened in the city of Jerusalem. And I would think that it's right to say that the reason they were so downhearted and the reason they were so disillusioned and the reason that they were so discouraged was not because they didn't understand, they didn't understand, but that wasn't the reason for their heavy hearts, but as much as it was unbelief. And I think it's right to say that unbelief always or typically equals grief. Unbelief brings grief. It certainly did for them, and maybe we can think of times in our life when that was the case. The title of the message, We See Jesus. Earlier, they had been seeing Jesus. Verse 19 in Luke 24. Verse 21, you might be noticing those verses and seeing that, yeah, they had been all excited about that. They had been seeing Jesus with their physical, literal eyes and were pleased and excited about what they were seeing. But now, it seemed, with the events of the last few days, it seemed like their eyes of faith were squeezed tight shut. And I'm just thinking that hopefully our situation here this evening is kind of the opposite of theirs. Um, we can't see Jesus here with our physical eyes. 
although he's here in the form of the Holy Spirit, certainly he is, and living in our hearts, but we can't see him physically, but we certainly can with the eyes of faith, can we not? And I hope that our, though our physical eyes don't work to see Jesus here this evening, that, the eyes, that our eyes of faith, faith in him, can be wide open, open wide. When the stranger that day caught up to them, uh, verse 15, when the stranger caught up to them and they started conversing, I think it's instructive and I think it's wonderful. Verse 25, they had been talking for a while and he didn't chide them one little bit for their lack of understanding. Do you see that there in verse 25? Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And the key word, I think, is that verb, believe. The stranger, Jesus, didn't chide them a bit for their lack of understanding. He chided them for their lack of belief. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so he went ahead, verse 27, and expounded. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He expounded, and very possibly, I'm just guessing, that he would have gone in two different tracks, two different angles. I'm just guessing that that's the case. And let's think about those two different tracks just a bit here this evening as we think about we see Jesus. The first track, the first way of seeing Jesus, we're only thinking of two here this evening. There could be many more. The first one I'm thinking about is the pictures in the Bible, the pictures. And as we think and as we look at the pictures, I think maybe we should confine ourselves to maybe the first book of the Bible, um, the book of Genesis. We've been studying uh, that in Sunday school the last weeks and months, and so that some of those pictures should could be um, pretty familiar to us. Let's just look at the book of of Genesis a bit about the pictures of Christ that are woven into the Word of God, the pictures. The first one that I would like to think, well, yeah, thinking about the pictures. We sometimes call them types and shadows, or types and shadows. Uh, In Romans 5.14, the Bible calls these pictures, uh, it calls calls it a figure. That's the term that it's used. Romans 5.14, a figure. Types and shadows, pictures of Christ Pictures way back in the Old Testament, long before Christ came. The first one that I we could look at is in is Adam's love for Eve. And did you know? And I know that that is a picture. That's a type because the Bible itself says that in Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned over the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the, there's the word, who is the figure of him that was to come. The Bible says right out loud there that 
Adam was a type of Christ. He uses a little different terminology, but that's what it means, I believe. Adam was a type of Christ. And we can easily see how that Adam was a type of Christ um, when Eve was created, perhaps. When Eve was built is the term that the Bible really uses. But Adam, I like to think that Adam was a type of Christ in the fall because of his great love for Eve. And as I say that, I think that you're thinking, you're transferring the picture to that of Christ. How was Adam like Jesus in his love for Eve? Well, I would just suggest that when Eve partook of that fruit, she had fallen, and there was a point where Adam had not yet fallen, but he also took of the fruit and ate. And I think that it wasn't maybe so much his apathy or his weakness that did that, as much as his love for his bride, just as Christ loves the church. That might be something that you'd want to think about a little bit more. Um, the Bible does say in First or Second Timothy that Adam was not deceived. Adam, I think, knew exactly what he was doing, but he did that because of his love for the, his bride. And he probably understood and knew somehow that if he doesn't condescend to be with her, that he, she can never be saved. And the fact that he did also step down and sinned was the means for her redemption. Are you thinking about how Christ loved the church so much that he stepped down to save, to identify with the bride of Christ and to rescue the bride of Christ? Adam. Adam's love for Eve is just one of the pictures that we look at this evening as we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Later that day, there was the coats of skin that the Lord prepared for Adam and Eve in their guilty, naked state. Those fig leaves just didn't do the trick at all in God's sight. So he prepared and provided coats of skins, the Bible says, and clothed them. And with that, of course, was the shedding of blood. Again, just a wonderful picture of Christ's provision of blood for undeserving, sinful mankind, coats of skins. Then we naturally go, in the book of Genesis, uh, as we think about blood being shed, those animal skins, then we think of Abel and his lamb, do we not? In contrast to Cain's bloodless offering. And I think that also is just a wonderful picture. Abel, a type of Christ, understanding how that it needs to be, if, if there is to be any redemption, salvation, savior, uh, saving, it will be through the shedding of blood. As the Bible says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Still in the book of Genesis, and I'm sure there's many more pictures, We're just, but let's look at Noah and the ark for, for just a minute. Noah and the ark. So there was judgment that was proclaimed, and judgment was coming, and 
So Adam prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And that judgment, see the picture, that judgment fell for 40 days and 40 nights. And it was unmixed. The judgment fell, but it didn't fall on Noah because he was safe in the ark. The judgment fell on the ark, which is also a picture of Christ. And here we are. We are inside the ark of safety, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Think about Isaac on Mount Moriah. We often think about Abraham on Mount Moriah, do we not? But just for a minute, how about Isaac on Mount Moriah? They, he and his dad went, both of them together, in submission and obedience, and he was willing to lay on the altar, and he apparently was willing to give his life, whether he understood it or not. Isaac on Mount Moriah, a picture of Jesus. And we can hardly leave the book of Genesis, can we, without thinking about Joseph just a little bit. Joseph's suffering at the hands of his brothers, so he, his brothers didn't accept him, his brothers hated him, his brothers were envious of him, and as we think of that, we naturally think about the Sanhedrin that Dave talked about this morning, and the Jewish leaders who were just exactly that way. They hated him, they envied him. Um, Joseph suffering at the hand of his brothers. A picture of the suffering of Jesus at the hand of the Jewish people. But not just that, because if we reject Jesus, if we, if I reject Jesus, then I'm doing the same thing. And that picture lives on. Joseph suffering at the hand of his brothers. The day came of course, that Joseph became not only the savior of his brothers, but the savior of the world. Remember, Joseph, um, Pharaoh, uh, when Joseph was given honor and glory that day out of the prison, um, remember what Pharaoh named Joseph? He named him Zaphnath Paneah, which means, we think, Savior of the world. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Not just Savior of the brothers, not just Savior of the Jewish people, but Savior of the world. The pictures in, the, in Genesis. And maybe you're thinking about others that should be included. There's 38 more books in the Old Testament. And Jesus, that day uh, on the road to Emmaus, said... Oh, slow, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he went and began at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures. That means the, New, the Old Testament, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We just looked at a couple in the book of Genesis. But there, the Bible is full, the Old Testament is full of pictures of Jesus. We see Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. And the pictures that God, the author of the Bible, wove into the book itself. 
That's the first angle. That's the first track. The second one is the prophecies. Not only the pictures, but the, the literal prophecies in Old Testament times about Jesus. Did you know that the Old Testament prophesies in advance quite a lot about Jesus and his life and ministry while he will be here on earth? Quite a lot. Now, Peter Stoner was a mathematician scientist, and he wrote a book, Science Speaks, which is kind of a classic. And one of the things that he says there is that for eight prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus to have been fulfilled, literally fulfilled, just like it said, like the prophecies say, for eight prophecies to be fulfilled that way, Mr. Stoner was uh, good at uh, probability and odds and that kind of thing, and he said that for it just to have happened haphazardly without God having done it, was he ran it through all his mathematical mind. I don't know if there was computers back then. And he said there's one chance in uh, 100 quadrillion that that could have just happened by happenstance. One out of 100 quadrillion. And I understand that quadrillion means a one with zero, 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 17 zeros behind it. There's just one chance out of 100 quadrillion that these prophecies would have been literally and completely fulfilled outside of God doing it. It couldn't have just happened by chance. Well, it could have one chance out of 100 quadrillion. And then he goes on to say, because that doesn't mean much to me, to us, does it? The, uh, the, that big, big number. He went on to say that uh, 100 quadrillion, let's just suppose there was 100 quadrillion silver dollars that were minted, and we took them, that, all of those, and poured it out on the state of Texas which if Texas was a square, I think people say it would be 518 miles by 518 miles square. 100 quadrillion, if that's the correct number. If, if they would be poured into Texas, it would cover Texas about two feet deep. And let's just say that one of those we painted red. And so somebody... So here they are, 100 quadrillion in the state of Texas, and one of them somewhere is painted red. Now we uh, blindfold a man and tell him to go find that in the state of Texas, and the, the chance that he would pick the, the red one somehow, the first one, that's 100 quadrillion. And we smile at that, but yes, we understand that the prophecies were fulfilled because God arranged that. God in his sovereignty and God in his power. It was not possible 
that it could have just happened by chance, but it was God at work in these prophecies. We see Jesus, God uh, showcasing his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, ahead of time. Now that was eight prophecies, and we're told that there was about 300 prophecies of Christ Jesus' first coming, about 300. Let's just think of eight of them just real quickly here. And some of the prophecies, some of the 300, of course, have to do with his life and ministry other than his suffering and death, like the fact that he was born in Bethlehem and that he was from the tribe of Judah and the family of David and that there was a forerunner to come beforehand and those kind of things. But let's think just together quickly as we think of seeing Jesus here this evening of eight prophecies of his suffering and death, given in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it actually happened. Now, the first one, uh, Zechariah 13.6, indicates that he would be betrayed by his friend, by a friend. Zechariah 11 talks about being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22.18 says that his hands and feet were pierced. Psalm 22.16 says that his clothes were gambled away. Isaiah 53.9 speaks of that he was to have vinegar to drink. Psalm 34.20 um, mentions that his bones were not, were not broken. And then, of course, that famous one in Isaiah 53.9, that he was to be buried in a rich man's grave. And back to Psalm 16.10, his dead body wouldn't decay. Thou, thou wilt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. We see Jesus in all of that. Now, I, I would have liked to be there that day. I, I think it would have been wonderful, neat for, to be, have been one of those two people. And I've long thought that if, if I could have just been at one biblical event, uh, if you could have been at one biblical event, which one would you pick? Uh, watching David kill Goliath or... Uh, seeing the contest on Mount, Mariah, uh, on Mount Carmel that day when Elisha um, was against the 400 prophets of Baal, I've thought that I would have loved to be here and be one of those men and listen to Jesus speak about beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We see Jesus and we are not surprised, are we, that verse 32, of course their hearts burned warmly within them when the world's greatest preacher spoke about himself from Old Testament times. I'm just guessing he spoke in pictures and he spoke about the prophecies of himself. We see Jesus in the pictures and we certainly see Jesus in the prophecies especially of his suffering and death. Of course, their hearts burned warmly within them. Of course it did. And I'm just hoping that your heart, as we've been talking about this now for the last 25 minutes or so, that in some good little way that your heart also is burning um, brightly as we see Jesus here together, together here this evening. We've only touched on 
just a little bit of Jesus to see. There is so much more because he is not only the world's greatest preacher, but he is savior of the world, Zaphnath Paneah. And beyond all that, he is Lord of all. And he's coming again one of these times. Uh, so I hope until that happens that the Lord comes for you and comes for me, whether it is by, in the rapture of the church or whether it's by death. I hope that our hearts, all of, all of ours, yours and mine, would burn intently. Well, as we partake of communion this evening, as we do that together, because another great theme of, of communion, of course, is the togetherness. Think about washing each other's feet. Think about giving of alms, certainly so. So, as we partake of the communion emblems this evening, uh, our part of the service, that our, oh, that our hearts would burn within us, especially as we remember his broken body and his shed blood and that he's coming, that he's alive and coming again. Not just this evening, but I hope we see him with our eyes of faith all of this next week and until he comes, that we would all together love him and obey him all of our lifetimes through. First Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as oft as ye eat this cup, drink this cup and eat, ye do show the Lord's death until he come. And that phrase in Hebrews two nine, but we see Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Well, thank you, Norman, for that uh, exposition. I think that was well done. Uh, drawing our minds to, uh, to Jesus and his sufferings and the prophecies and the promises. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. I think uh, we're ready then for, uh, to enter into the communion uh, service here. Uh, we'll do it uh, typical to the traditional pattern that we've done in the past. We begin in the back and file forward, receive the, uh, the bread, and uh, just wait to eat it until we do it all together. And then we'll start in the front with the uh, juice and um, drink that while we're up here and then return to our seats and be seated. So it'll just take us a little um, short time to get ready here and then we'll, be, we'll go ahead with that. I encourage us to uh, feel free to sing. I think Jordan is prepared with some songs if, if uh, no one else leads out, but I think it would be nice if you have a song. Uh, there would be some spontaneous verses and singing would be just fine. All right, let's, uh, let's pray together and uh, ask the Lord to uh, 